12. Luke chapter 12. He was so excited about the sermon, he didn't want to leave. I saw a couple adults get up and head out, but he wanted to stay. Luke 12. We're back to Luke. We're back to our study of Luke. You know, we started our study in the Gospel of Luke quite some time ago. Um, it may have been 2016. I'm not sure. But we've been in this book for a long time. And it's just a... I just love the Gospels. We preached through Mark in the other building. Uh, we didn't. I did. But we went through it together, uh, studied the Gospel. I just love coming and seeing Jesus and his teaching and his activity. There's so much to learn. And uh, I've enjoyed your singing this morning as we've worshipped him. And now uh, I would want to do what Leah said. I want us to see Christ in the Scripture. And it's just such a beautiful passage for us to look at. First thing let's do is read it, Okay. It's, uh, it's verse 49 to 59. We're coming to the end of this chapter. Then I'll bring us back up to speed as to where we were before Christmas and so on. Excuse me just for a second. <coughs> Sometimes the singing <coughs> does a little number on my throat. But All right, it's uh, verse 49. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with. <coughs> Excuse me, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided three against two, and two against three. They will be, they will be divided father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. You can see there why our theme is God the righteous judge, because we're going to come to that in a minute. Typically, a work week for me is, uh, can be, uh, can be uh, very uh, planned, and uh, the way I start it at the beginning of the week or plan it out at the beginning of the week, that's the way it happens. Other times, it's not the case. Uh, if I'm not here studying, I'm usually out connecting with some individual or knocking on doors, inviting people to church or having some sort of meeting, but Oftentimes when I'm here, someone will come to the door for some various purpose or reason. Um, and I started to think back over the last month on people who have come to the door and for various reasons or even in the past why they've done that. Uh, we just had a guy come to the door uh, this week and uh, put on a new thing on our piano, so now we have to water our piano. Uh, we pour water into this thing so it uh, will not break or crack the soundboard. So he, I'm here, I'm ready to do that. A uh, lot of times people come to the door and ask for financial help. They need uh, gas money or they need some food or something. 
Uh, sometimes it'll be, it'll be rosemary here to put the flowers up. Other times it will be um, Pokemon players out in the, in the parking lot. Remember these guys who came and like were fighting Pokemon monsters? A guy came a couple weeks ago and wanted to take pictures of all of us for a church directory. Wondered if I wanted to have a church directory made. Um, so, you know, the most unique one was probably that old man who came and said his father used to pastor the church. And uh, so we got a lot of unique things, but they all come for a specific purpose. When Christ came to this earth, he came for a specific reason. And in our passage today, he mentions that. And we just got, cel- we just got finished celebrating Advent, and we lit the candles, and we were reminded of the first coming of Christ. And, and we've gone over some of these things before, like the reason that Christ came. Luke 19.10, he came to seek and to save whatever was lost. Matthew 20.28, he came to give his life a ransom for many. John 10.10, I came to that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. John 14, I came to reveal the Father. 1 Timothy 1.15, he came to save sinners. In our passage today, he gives another reason that he comes. I mean, it's the same reason. He just gives it a little bit of of a different spin. The last couple chapters of Luke, we haven't been in Luke since uh, before Thanksgiving or, or around then because then we had our Advent study, but has re- the, as, as Luke's gospel has gone on, of course, first we were introduced to the prophecies and the birth of Christ, his temptation, kind of his uh, annunciation of his ministry and then the early stages of his ministry, but in the last couple of chapters, there has been developing hostility towards the Lord, even to the point where people are now wanting to kill him, accusing him of doing his miracles in the power of Satan. It was kind of the climactic accusation. We really appreciate you healing all these people, but we just wonder why you're doing it in the power of Satan. And Jesus, of course, we did, went over that study where he says, how can Satan, why would Satan fight against himself, etc.? But this was their ultimate rejection. Not just rejecting it for face value, but saying it was a satanic power. This led Jesus to withdraw a bit with his followers and begin to instruct them about the barriers of discipleship. Following Christ is not easy. Following Christ is not cushy. There are barriers and pitfalls, and in chapter 12, he lists a lot of them. Hypocrisy, fear of others, materialism or possessions, worry, and then one of our last ones was on being unprepared. This is in verse 35 all the way up to 48, where it talks about being ready for the master when he comes home from the wedding feast. And there, there are various degrees of people who are not ready. There are those who knew his will and totally rejected it and lived the drunken life. goes on to say that. There are those who said, well, we didn't kind of expect to. And then there's varying degrees of punishment for that. That's how it ended in, in our last study. But since Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus' mission has been to go to Jerusalem to die. In fact, if you look back at Luke 9.51, you don't have to, but if you flip back there, it would say, it uses this phrase, he set his face towards Jerusalem. The determining mission of Christ was to come to die. That was his purpose in coming. And he mentions it a couple of times in the passage. Look at the passage we're in right now, verse 49, I came. I just said, what is the purpose of his coming? I came. And then he says in verse 51, he says in a little bit different way, do you think that I have come? So he's going to say a couple of things. So here's basically how the message is going to work today. There are, there are two realities. There are two realities of the mission of Christ. And then there are two urgent admonitions from Christ. So the message is going to be basically split in half. We're going to look at first the two realities of the mission of Christ. 
and then the two urgent admonitions. And if you're taking notes, they're all going to start with the letter D so you can track through it with us. Okay? The two realities of the mission of Christ, let me just give it to you right away. The two realities of the, of the mission of Christ is death and division. Death and division. Now, there's a couple of, of words and phrases that we need to identify and define before we get much further. He says, I came to cast fire on the earth and I wish it was already burning. And then he says, but I can't do that yet because I have to be baptized first. So the two terms that we really have to understand are fire and baptism. What does he mean by this? He announces to these people right after, again, right after he talks about the varying degrees of punishment in eternity. I know it's been a month and almost six weeks since we've talked about Luke, but you've got to put yourself in the context of what is just happening. He just talked about these people who aren't ready for the master's return, and they're going to face varying degrees of punishment based on their response to God's will. Those of us who have responded in a positive way will not face any punishment, will not face any judgment, and everybody said, hallelujah to that, hallelujah to that. And now he goes on to say, I wish that that fire were already burning, but it's something that can't happen yet. Fire is has different symbols in the scripture, but primarily fire equals judgment. Fire equals judgment. And whatever this fire or judgment is, it hasn't happened yet because Jesus wished it would be happening. You see that in the passage? I came to cast fire on the earth and I wish it were already kindled. So the fire has not yet been kindled. The judgment has not yet happened because something else needs to happen first. That is his baptism. And we'll explain that in just a second. Put a finger here or a piece of paper. Go back all the way to Luke chapter 3. This has already been introduced by Luke to a certain degree. We talked about this in 2016. So I, don't, I forgive you if you don't remember everything. But uh, Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist is preaching. And he is, of course, enunciating that Jesus is going to come follow after him. Some people thought John was the Messiah. Oh, here, here he is. And John said, no, no, no. Somebody mightier is coming because all I can do is baptize you with water. Okay, now pick it up where he stops. He's saying, verse, uh, this is John 3, uh, verse number 16. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming. Talking about the Lord. I can't even unstrap his sandal. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and, next word, everybody, fire. He's going to baptize you with fire. He's going to place you in fire. He's either going to place you in the Holy Spirit or he's going to place you in fire. And then it goes on to explain more of this fiery judgment. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn. Do you burn wheat? No, you don't, you don't burn wheat. It's, it's preserved. But the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. You remember when we talked about this, you probably don't remember, but, the, but the, you go into the threshing floor and with a winnowing fork, throw the grain into the air. And the chaff would do what? It would blow away. It would, it would blow away, and, and then that would be gathered up and burned where the wheat would be preserved and kept safely in the barn. You can understand the spiritual ramifications of that. So the fire is a prediction from John the Baptist that Jesus, the one mightier who is going to come, is going to place people, he's going to, he's going to divide them into one of two groups. They're either, they're either going to be the wheat that is preserved or they're going to be the chaff that is consumed. Now go back to Luke chapter 12, where we are. So this fire refers not to the Holy Spirit, not to God's word. It refers to divine judgment. Jesus is talking about what John the Baptist predicted he would do. 
Judgment would come, but baptism has to come first, okay? So more on the judgment in just a minute. Let's go on to this baptism. Every time you see the word baptism in the Bible, don't think of water. Because more often than not, it doesn't refer to that. It refers to something else. Baptism just means to be immersed in, to be immersed in something. Right? I, I could almost say, uh, if I had uh, three tests to grade today, I could almost say, oh man, I am baptized in these tests. Right? It's, it, 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 it's a weird way of saying it, but it's like, oh man, I'm just inundated. I'm, I'm kind of drowning in this work. That's kind of what baptized means, to be placed into or immersed into. So Jesus is saying, I cannot yet make that judgmental fire come because first I must be baptized. He's not talking about his water baptism. We know that primarily because it's, that already happened back in Luke chapter 3 or 4 is where Jesus already was baptized. And he also has a great distress See it in verse 50, a great distress until that baptism is accomplished. What does he mean by that baptism? We are talking about fire means judgment. What about this baptism? Most will say that it's his death, and I agree with that. But I think it, it is even greater than that. It is the, it is the because when we think of death, we, we tend to only think of the physical aspect of Jesus at the cross. Is that what he is greatly distressed about? Or is he greatly distressed about something else? Now, certainly his death is included in that, but I like what one sentence I read this week. I said, I got to use that sentence. It really means he is looking forward to being, quote, inundated with the waters of divine judgment. Inundated with the waters of divine judgment. He's talking about the totality of the suffering and death that he would face. And I would dare say that the physical aspect of his death was probably the easiest for Christ to bear. Normally, and, and if you saw the movie The Passion of the Christ, I did not. Normally, that is what is emphasized from pulpits or, for, or when we talk about the death of Christ. It's, oh, can you imagine the nails and the spear and the pain and the beating and the beard and the back. And, and we talk about the physical aspect and we do honor God and honor Christ for that sacrifice, but far greater than the physical pain is the bearing of God's wrath on sin. It is the separation and abandonment that he felt from the Father, which he never experienced before. This moment where God turns his back on his son and Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, why are you forsaking me? And the, and the total, right, inundated with the waters of divine judgment just washes over our Lord. The physical pain, I mean, I don't mean to, to minimize it, but what Christ is distressed about is that, is that divine judgment that he would face from God. And he says about it, I am greatly distressed until it is accomplished. Basically what he's saying is, my whole ministry is looking ahead to that moment. I don't mean, I, I, don't, I don't even want to say this to be trite, but it's like when you get that dentist card, I relate this a lot, sorry Fred, when you get this dentist card and it says, cavity filled next week, and you're like, oh, and you're like four days, and it's all you can think about. I mean, it's very minor, very, very minor. What Christ is saying here, and another way it was worded in a study guide is, is his whole life is governed by that moment. Right? Set his face, Luke 9, 51. It's all he's thinking about. Great is his distress until that ultimate moment of all human history happens. And when that happens, then what comes? 
After the baptism comes, the, starts with an F, comes the fire. So the baptism has to happen first, that suffering, the inundation of divine judgment. Then the fire of God's judgment and division will come. Jesus is not shrinking from this duty. Jesus is not whining about it to his disciples. Oh, is that great as my distress until I die? No, no. What he's saying is he, he is... He is not shrinking from it. He is moving towards it. Think of Hebrews 12 too. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. He is anxious to fulfill his mission. Knowing that this death will bring division. Understand that. The two realities of the mission of Christ. Why did he come? To die and to divide. To die and to divide. Hebrews 12, 29 says that our God is a consuming fire, and everybody who understands fire understands it has a twofold effect. It depends on what it is burning. It depends on the nature of what is being burned. Fire will either consume in order to destroy, or it purifies in order to refine. Here is the division that happens. Depending on the nature of what is being burned, the Lord is longing to cast this fire which required his death first. Based on how you respond to his death will determine how this fire affects you. Grasp that? Will the fire destroy? Will the fire refine? This is what Christ came to do, to cast that fire, to, to throw that winnowing fire fork in the air and, and divide all the world. I mean, I, th this is going to be a theme from this pulpit for the rest of my life, and you've heard it over and over. There are two groups of people, and there's probably 10 or 12 of those identifications in the scripture. You have wheat, chaff, wicked, righteous, goats, sheep, children of the devil, children of God, wicked. I mean, over and over, there are two groups. There's no third no man's land of people who are just kind of fuzzy and out there and kind of like church but kind of like to commit sin too. There are these two groups of people. They are completely and totally divided and the way they are divided is not good, bad, white, black, men, women, city, country. They are divided by repentant, believing, or rejecting, rebelling. That is how the division happens. And the fire of judgment is going to consume and destroy Revelation chapter 20. Derek read it. Isn't that sobering? The great white throne judgment, he took those people and burned them in the everlasting lake of fire. Christ came to do this, quote, the fire, quote, is the spiritual power which the Lord will exercise through his word and the spirit to the undoing of those who reject him and to the refining of those who believe in him. That is so good. The spiritual fire is, quote, the spiritual power which the Lord will exercise through his word and the spirit to the undoing of those who reject him and to the refining of those who believe in him. One of the first messages I ever preached at Grace was over in the other building. Uh, it's the cross still divides. The cross divides. The cross divided the two men cross divided the two men and the cross still divides look at jesus question do you think i came to bring peace do you think my ministry is all about love and peace and now did christ come to bring peace of course he did but that ultimate peace will not be realized until all rebels are punished he says i came to bring division 
This is why people who don't understand the mission of Christ can say, well, it's very important to do unto others. And they take bits and pieces of the message of Christ, but they do not understand that the true message of Jesus is to turn and repent. So he knows his mission of death will divide, and it will divide even the most intimate of relationships, the family. The different responses to Christ are what divides. Do you understand that? And so, if you have responded to Christ in the proper way, which we're going to get to in just a second, if you have repented and believed, and you believe Christ is the only way, I spoke to an individual this week who said, well, you, you, know, you believe in your God and, and Buddha and Allah, and, and I believe that you know, this is that. And isn't, isn't that okay for everybody? This is not a straw man argument that we talk about in here and nobody believes out there. People are buying into that. And when those of us stand up and say, no, Jesus is the exclusive only way to God. It's not a mountain everybody can climb from different directions and get to the top. He is the only way to God. You know what you can expect? Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, yeah, I know. You expect hostility, tension, rejection, anger, and division. That's what Christ said. Do you think there's going to be peace when you say that to people? Do you think everybody's going to be clamoring for that? Folks, it disgusts me and it angers me when the Joel Olstein commercial comes on and, and you hear him saying, folks, 2019 is going to be the year of your promotion. Or 2019 is going to be the year that you succeed. It's nonsense. It is a false gospel. The true gospel divides. And here's another great thought. If you think you're a Christian and you believe the gospel, but you're not sensing any division in your life from people who are unbelievers, you are not believing the right gospel. Because the gospel will divide. And we don't like to offend people, and nobody likes to offend people. We're not saying we're going out purposefully to offend others. Say, listen, jerk. No, it's, it's the truth will naturally offend. And when people even say, well, I believe Jesus Christ died for my sins, and yeah, I believe that. And you press a little bit, and you press a little bit. You know what starts to happen? The hair on the back of their neck goes up, and they don't like that very much. That's a determining factor into whether or not you truly are presenting the true gospel. If all of your relationships with unbelievers are just hunky-dory, I've never used that phrase before, and I don't know why I use it there, but there is just this peace and wonderful then something is wrong. We don't go out and purposefully seek division, but it will happen. Even in family, there will be tension. Quote, sooner or later... Jesus always causes a conflict based on our response. You're judgmental. You're a goody-goody. Stop judging me. You're radical. You're too committed. You're so extreme. Those type of comments. Jesus describes it this way. Your decision will cause division. What you think about Christ will ultimately cause division. And you know, it's not the, the gospel is not to blame for this division. Okay? The gospel is not to blame for this division. It is the corrupt heart of men and women who reject the gospel. Why? Why do we read about it? They reject it because they love their sin. So where does that leave us then? If, and, and the division of the family, we, it, it, it doesn't, it, you know, the, that maybe you've even seen that in your own life. Your response to Christ has divided your family. 
you can take comfort in knowing that Jesus predicted that. And you can take comfort in knowing that your life is causing that division in a sense because the corruption of the people around you are seeing that and they are, they are divided. Even if it's not necessarily hostility, we don't have to expect open hostility, you know, torches and pitchforks coming to our home, but, but the tension that exists between family, even a tension that exists between family members who are, who are like I said, kind of overcommitted. Well, come on. I mean, moving to Guam, that's kind of stupid. I mean, why, why would you give your life that? I mean, come on. It's one thing, you know, it's one thing to kind of keep Jesus in your pocket and, and be saved, but come on, okay? Division, hostility, right? Expect that. So what does Jesus, where does that leave us? Since the mission of Christ and his death will divide, he now turns to the crowd. You see it in verse 54? So he turns to the crowd now. What is going to be the application of this division? Okay. He sees to the crowd. When you see a cloud... Crowd, cloud. When you see a, when he says to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you immediately say a shower is coming, so it happens. When you see the south wind blowing, you say there'll be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky. Why do you not know how to interpret the present time? So, so the, the two realities, we're moving to the second part of the message, it's going to be shorter, but the two realities of Jesus' death is his death will divide. The application for us now is to discern and decide. Discern and decide. Jesus rebukes the crowds. This is, this is a word of rebuke. What is the word of rebuke in his statement here? Why do we know he's not just, he's not just teaching, but he's actually, he's actually re- rebuking the people? What is the word that proves that? Yeah, hypocrites. Hypocrites. This is, this is, you, this is a word that is used by the Lord uh, in very certain situations to, to demonstrate a strong reaction against the teaching. You are hypocrites, Okay. Jesus points out two weather phenomenon here uh, in, the, in the Middle East, okay? He says, you look to the west and you see a cloud rising. The, to the west of where they would be would be over the Mediterranean Sea. And so anyone in those days who saw a cloud rising in the west would immediately prepare for a storm because the moisture of the sea connect, it would, just be, it would just be so demonstrable that anybody with a discerning eye would say, we're going to have a storm. He uses a second illustration about a southern wind coming in verse number 55, and then they recognize that there's going to be scorching heat. Look at the two phrases, though. He says, a shower is coming, and it happens. You say there's going to be heat, and it happens. These two illustrations about the weather, Jesus is saying, you're able to discern that. You're able to discern that. Then look at his question at the end. Why are you not able to interpret what's going on spiritually right in your midst? Why are you not able to discern what I just said about punishment, fire, and death? How can you figure that out, but you can't interpret what's happening with me? Now, the word hypocrites is used, which I believe seems to indicate that Jesus is saying, it is not a problem with your mind. It is a problem with your will. Okay? It, it's, you can't just say, uh, with your mind, you can discern that there's going to be a storm. And, and, and with your mind, why can't you discern with your mind these things? Because the, the darkened mind, the, the dead carnal mind, cannot grasp the things of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14. It says that the natural man 
cannot understand the things of God. They actually are foolishness to him. They're darkened. They're they are spiritually blinded. So when Jesus says hypocrites, he's saying it's not a problem that you, that you can't. It's that you won't. It's that you won't. There's this, there is this tension of divine, uh, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. A person cannot respond to the truth of the Scripture until the Holy Spirit regenerates them and gives them ability to discern and understand that. But that doesn't excuse men and women from not exercising their own will to respond to the truth that is right in front of them. That's the point that Jesus is making here when he calls them hypocrites. When you add blindness to unwillingness, there's no hope of salvation. They are willingly ignoring the signs that are in front of them. Remember that? Just, just recently, it's like, give us a sign. And Jesus is doing signs all over the place. It's that they will not see it for what it is. They will not come to Christ. If you, in fact, if you look back at Luke 4 uh, or Luke 11, those are two passages, we don't necessarily turn to those, where signs are given and they are ignored. Instead of responding there will be rebellion. And what's interesting to me is both of those weather phenomenon are kind of, uh, kind of judgmental type weather phenomenons. You've got a storm and a heat, right? What Jesus is saying is you prepare for that, you better prepare for the spiritual fire that is bearing down on you. Every Saturday, first Saturday of the month, you know what we hear here in town? That's pretty good. Tornado practice. Tornado practice. I sometimes will look out the window. Nobody's scurrying around. People aren't battening down the hatches. They know it's just a, a practice or a, a you know, testing out of the signal. But if people were looking at the clouds and seeing green and hearing trains and, and understanding the storm is happening and that thing came on, they would respond to the warning. And when things going good in people's lives, and then you have other people saying, Jesus wants to just kind of come and promote you and heal you and, and fill your wallet. You know, there is a fire and a judgment that is bearing down on these lost folks. And it was bearing down on me. And when we, when we see people who are taking cover from physical weather, but they will not take cover under Christ's wings for spiritual protection. Jesus is saying, hypocrites, ignorant, willfully disobedient. So he encourages them to do something. This last, this last passage is so important, so please tune in if you tuned away for just a second. Here's the ultimate point. It doesn't make sense unless you follow through the whole passage. Why do you judge for yourselves what is right? As, as you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer hand you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you pay the last penny. And all of a sudden, we're like, why is Jesus talking about civil lawsuits now? <laughs> so, okay. Just, I mean, it's like people reading this, well, this is wonderful about all this judgment and fire. Now, now he tells us how to deal with our civil problems. It's got to be connected somehow. Okay? And, and, you see, the whole passage is judgment. The whole passage is judgment, right? Uh, you, start, you start with the passage with the fire that's going to come. Then Jesus is going to face the judgment of God as he is baptized into that water of judgment. 
Then you see the kind of the storm and the heat, more judgment. Now you have another judge. He uses another illustration of judgment. And he's saying, listen, if you're involved in a civil dispute and you're on your way to the court to solve this, he says, much better would it be for you to, here's the, here's the title of the message, to settle it on the way. Settle it on the way. Then to get there and have this process of judge to officer, officer to prison, and you're there till you pay the last penny. I think, if I'm remembering right, I didn't write it down, I think that would refer to a lepta, which is about what you would be paid for 25 minutes of work. I mean, this is down to the, you're, you're, you're going to pay it all down to the last drop. Jesus is saying, much wiser would it be for you to settle before you get there. Now think in the physical world, why in the world would you settle a lawsuit instead of going to court? Think about this for a minute. I'd like you to come to the answer yourself. Why would you settle a lawsuit or a civil dispute instead of taking it to court? What would be the only reason you would settle beforehand? Okay, to pay a lesser amount? Anyone else? You're guilty. If you're innocent, I'm going all the way. Get it? If, if, if I am accused of some heinous crime, Fred stands up and says, I saw a pastor taking money out of the offering plate and putting it in his pocket. And I know it ain't true. We're going to court, buddy. We're going all the way. Because I didn't do this. Right? But if I'm guilty... I want to I pay a lesser amount, so can we, they say it, settle out of court. And you settle out of court when you're guilty, lest you get to the point where the judgment bears down, and when that gavel strikes, now it's too late to go to the lesser payment. Now think of what Jesus is saying here. I died to divide, and, I, and the division comes in the way people respond to the meaning of my death. Some people think, oh, we're all going to go to heaven and this is whatever. And some people despise the Lord's teaching on this. Other people repent and believe in Jesus is the only way and they worship him to cause this division. And the fire will burn the ones who rebelled and refine the ones who responded properly. Then he says, you hypocrites, can't you see the weather signs and you can't see the spiritual signs of what's happening in the world? You are guilty and you deserve judgment. So it would be so good for you to settle this dispute now instead of waiting till you get to that final gavel at what Derek read at the Great White Throne Judgment. You get to that final gavel, and now it's going to be too late, and you're going to pay it all. And you know how long it's going to take you to pay it all? The rest of eternity. The last penny will never be paid. Look at the phrase, settle now with your accuser. Make an effort to settle with him on the way. Now think of, we've been talking all about judgment, 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 pounding the pulpit, God judges you, fire, storm, weather. But think of the grace of God. You know what he wants to do? Settle with you. (laughs) He gives the opportunity to settle And you know how he gave the opportunity? Because Christ is going to be inundated with the waters of divine judgment instead of Andy. His suffering and his death and his separation and his abandonment 
by his father is so that Andy doesn't have to be abandoned by the father. And Andy doesn't have to be separated from the father for all of eternity. And all I have to do is say, Christ, save me. I abandon myself. There is nothing good I have. Please save me. And it's all settled. And the payment is gone. And the debt is over. What a gracious God that he even makes that possible. He should incinerate me immediately for my rebellion and my sin. The same with you. But he gives this offer of settlement. Christ in John 1, it is said, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. They have this intimate, beautiful fellowship, sharing of love with one another. And the gospel is not just about our sinfulness offending a holy God and Christ paying the penalty for that so we can be rightly related to him. You know what it's about? It, it's, it's about Christ inviting us to share in that heavenly father love relationship so that we are not just slaves but we are sons and daughters. It's not like we're walking with the accuser and say, hey, can I somehow make up this debt? Oh, okay, it's, it's, it's the accuser who is God rightly accusing us, inviting us to be his sons and daughters. And now, not only do you not have to pay him anything back, but he showers upon you every spiritual blessing, adopts you, redeems you, saves you. Now for all of eternity, you're going to enjoy the pleasures of God evermore in that happy, happy land. Or, we could say, fooey to that, that's all nonsense, or I think I'm okay, and take our chances, and get to heaven, and the gavel comes down, and there is no second chance. People believe this. It's so good for us to talk with unbelievers and realize they really believe this. I talked with the person this week. You mean to say, these are the exact words, you mean to say that there's no second chance after death? I always thought that when my friend so-and-so died, that God would eventually, and Rob Bell promoted this nonsense in a book, remember, to Christians. What does Hebrews 9.26 say? Is the point on a man once to die and after that to face the judgment? There's no second hope. There's no second chance. Think about Luke 16. We're coming there in a couple weeks. There is a great gulf fixed. You cannot pass from there to there. You cannot pass from there to there. Well, let me go back. Let me rise from the dead. Let me write a heaven tourism book so everyone will know that heaven is real. No, they have the law and the prophets. And you know what? If they won't believe that, they won't believe anything. What a gracious and good and loving Savior we have. He he rebukes these folks for being unwilling to respond, but at the same time he says, will you please settle now with your accuser? Will you? Will you? A lot of times people come to church, and uh, I was reading something this week, and I'll finish with this. I was reading something this week and say, well, a lot of people come to church with a consumer mentality. Um, and this line was really funny. They want, they want three things to do this week. They want three things to do this week to make their lives better. And the statement was, it was encouragement to pastors, a book written to pastors, and his statement was, uh, don't fall into that trap. Just exalt Jesus. Because 
when people realize all that Jesus has done for them, if they rightly realize that, it affects every single area of their life. When you rightly realize this passage, that Jesus is desirous of this dividing fire to come, but then at the very end, it's not like, Jesus is not pointing this angry finger. Like Sometimes we kind of, we kind of view Jesus as this, as, as kind of the nice side of God, you know, and, and then, then behind this God, we have this, behind this Jesus, we have this sinister God who's just kind of angry at everybody. Jesus is expressing who God is. That's what John 1.14 says. He came to declare him. I think it's 118. Came to declare him. What Jesus is offering, this opportunity for settlement, he's offering it on behalf of God. How blessed we are to have that opportunity. If you don't know Christ, oh, the, this is such an urgent need. He says, settle on the way. Well, how do you know when the way is over? How do you know when life ends? How many millions of things could go wrong in any of our bodies today? And our life is closed. And, you, and it, it's, we love, I don't mean to end on a foolish note, but we love to watch on YouTube the, the game shows where the people are so cocky and they think they know the right answer on a very easy question, and then they screw it up, and they're out. And <laughs> there's one where the guy goes, the guy is answering the question, and he realizes it right away, and he goes, wait, 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 wait. Can you imagine dropping into the pit of hell going, ah, and, and here in this beautiful sanctuary with the word of God just proclaimed to you and the opportunity available for you to settle now with the accuser and to respond to God and say, please forgive me, I repent of my sin, and then and, and half an hour from now, car wreck, brain aneurysm, heart attack, whatever, you're gone. And there is no, wait, 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 wait. It is over. So please accept God's grace now and settle with him now. And those of us who have, praise God. God for what Christ has offered to us. Let us live for him. Our Father, we thank you so much for Jesus, our Savior. How grateful we are for the opportunity to know God through you. Thank you for enlightening our eyes to the truth of the gospel, the beauty of Jesus, this beautiful Savior who has come to provide what we could not in ourselves. If there's anybody here don't, don't, please don't let anybody walk out unassured of their salvation. Let it not be a point of embarrassment or, or kind of being feeling humiliated that they might have to admit they don't know Christ. Oh, the seconds of what might be a possible embarrassment versus an eternity of punishment. Please, Father, let us all turn to you in faith. Those of us who know Christ, may we rejoice in what Jesus has provided and may we more closely follow him and we may, may we urgently present this message to the lost, knowing that it may cause division, but faithfully presenting your word. How, how overwhelmed I am today, God, at the grace which Christ has offered. We thank you in his name. Amen.